0: You're listening to the live launch of the 2020-2021 Transition Report, The State Strikes Back.
1: Hello and welcome to the launch of the 2020 Transition Report from the European Bank for Reconstruction and Development, the EBRD. My name is Tony Williams, I'm the Director of External Communications at the EBRD. Every year our Transition Reports take the temperature and analyse key trends that are dominating uh, the, the countries, the 38 emerging economies where the EBRD invests. This year, it's about the growing role of the state, even before the onslaught of the coronavirus pandemic. The the role of the state was growing. It's growing even faster, and it's growing even bigger as as governments around the world respond to the challenges of an unprecedented health disaster and economic crisis. This year's report is is entitled "The The State Strikes Back. We're joined by Beata Ljavojcik, who's the chief economist of the EBRD, who's going to present it. We're also joined virtually, but, uh, but really, by Mariana Mazzucato. She's the professor of economics of innovation and public value at University College of London, where she's the founding director of the Institute for Innovation and Public Purpose. She's the author of The Entrepreneurial State, Debunking Public versus Private Sector Myths, and the Value of Everything, Making and Taking in the Global Economy. We're also joined by Danny Roderick, the Ford Foundation Professor of International Political Economy at Harvard's John F. Kennedy School of Government. And he's the author of Straight Talk on Trade, Ideas for a Sane World Economy. And we're very privileged to get a special message by video from Joseph E. Stiglitz, Nobel Laureate in Economics and Professor at Columbia University. Now this event is being streamed live on the EBRD Facebook page, as well as on Zoom. Facebook Live viewers. You can post your questions on the comments. And before we start the discussion, a couple of points for you joining on Zoom, please make sure that you mute yourself, turn off your video, and you can put questions to the panel in the box. And do introduce yourself when you post your question. We'll be taking your questions towards the end of the broadcast. But just before we begin, I'd like to introduce our president, our new EBRD president, Odile renaud To give her views on the the subject, Odile was elected President of the EBRD just over a month ago. She took office just over a week ago, and I'm delighted that she's here today, Odile.
0: Thank you very much, and I'm very happy to be here with you today from Paris, greetings from Paris. Um, It's really a pleasure for me to introduce this this panel and this discussion on the transition report. it was mentioned the transition report is one of the, the flagship report from uh, the EBRD. It has always introduced uh, new issues, uh, triggered new debate, and uh, in a way uh, helped the bank to uh, to change and to, uh, to make its activity evolving to uh, the challenges and relying on the analysis put forward by this report. For example, recent transition report devoted to for example, the links between policy reforms and investment or economic inclusion certainly changed the way the EBRD defined itself and its objectives. But they also, this report also helped inform and shift the debate about markets and public policies in the IBRD regions themselves. This work is an independent work of our chief economist, Beata Sharjovic, and we are very much appreciate the impartiality and intellectual rigor she has brought to this exercise, which is a hallmark of this report. This year's transition report is, I'm sure, going to have at least as much impact as some of its predecessors, if not much more so. The growing role of the state, in our economies, and the challenges, risks, and opportunities this entails is now more timely than ever. To launch this report, we have a very, very eminent panel, and I'm very grateful for all panelists to participate. I will not uh, present them again, but we are very happy of of them joining this discussion, and I look forward to have a very lively, discussion, not, not everybody to agree on everything, but to enjoy a robust, a robust debate between all the panelists about what is really at stake here. From my, st- from my side, let me simply observe that as the report title as it, the state has indeed struck back. As Berta writes in a foreword, this is a statement of fact, not a value judgment. And the implications of the state state's enhanced role in our economies are far-reaching from the EBRD perspective, but also for all of us. Much now depends, for example, on the quality of governance and institutions the state has at its disposal. And here, this is an area where the EBRD can help by influencing and improving the performance of state-owned enterprise. It's clear, too, that the state will need to assume an absolutely central role in our efforts to make the transition to a green economy. And here, too, the EBRD has expertise and experience few other can call on, especially when it comes to the relationship between the state and the private sector. This is why this transition report is of great value for us and will help guiding our action in the future. But now let me give the floor to Beata to present the content of the report. Thank you very much. And the floor is yours, Beata.
2: Thank you very much, Odile. Good afternoon, everyone. Now, in this report, we document the size of the state, we paint a portrait of state-owned enterprises, We talk about state banks being on the rise. And we talk about the role of the state in green economy transition. Starting with the size of the state, government spending in the EBRD regions at around 35% of GDP has been in line with their characteristics. And there isn't much difference between post-communist countries and other countries where we are active. But where post-communist countries are different is when it comes to state employment. In the mid-1990s, state employment accounted for almost half of all employment. Now it's closer to a quarter. But even at a quarter, it's much larger than in advanced economies. And on average, it's seven percentage points higher than in countries with similar size of the state. As public share of employment has been declining, the support for expanding the role of the state in industry and in economy has been growing. And this has been true in advanced economies and particularly in post-communist countries. And you see that even if we compare cohorts, so people born in the same year, you clearly see an increase in support for greater role of the state. In emerging markets, the overall level of support is above 50%, so it's even higher than in post-communist countries. And if past experiences and a guide, COVID may further increase the positive view of the role of the state. We know that previous epidemics have dented trust in free market, in democracy, we know that people who reached adulthood during recessions have a much more positive view of state, of redistribution. And as you see on the graph here, people who reached adulthood during past epidemics also voice stronger support for the role of the state in the economy and in France. And the magnitude of that effect is between two and six percentage points. And that may be enough to actually shift the majority view in in some countries. Now let's move on to state-owned enterprises. Uh, In post-communist countries, they have been historically quite important. They tend to account for about half of public sector employment. Um, They tend to be concentrated in utilities, in transport, and in energy. These are similar sectors where we see state-owned enterprises in advanced economies. They often receive subsidies in order to provide universal service, often service to remote areas, often service provided at subsidized rates to low-income households. And because state-owned enterprises are important employers in, re- in lagging regions, and because they tend to provide stable employment during downturns, they have been acting as automatic stabilizers. But governments often struggle to run them efficiently. We know that SOEs tend to be less productive and less innovative. Now. The state-owned enterprises are not the only way of providing um, services to remote regions or subsidized services to poorer households. You can use private sector companies uh, to provide some such services. You can give them subsidies. You can make them, uh, you can impose on them public service obligations to ensure universal coverage, but that requires administrative capacity, capacity um, to set up such schemes, capacity to monitor them. And as you can see on the chart here, state-owned enterprises and public employment, on average, play a greater role in countries where administrative capacity is lacking. Now, in times of crises, private debts tend to become public debts. Governments often come to rescue of private firms by injecting equity stakes, by nationalization. And this may be very problematic in countries with poor governance and in countries where in particular governance of SOEs is deficient. This is unfortunately the case in many places where the EBRD is active. In many of our countries of operation, there is no separation between the regulatory function and running of SOEs. It may be the same ministry that is both responsible for running SOEs and for regulating the sector. And often, SOEs themselves have regulatory power. Uh, Running SOEs is frequently just an exercise in compliance. It doesn't focus on efficiency. Often the boards of SOEs do not even have the power to approve budgets. And what's particularly disturbing is that in minority of countries, appointments to these boards are based on merits or on qualifications. In majority of countries, it's high level officials who sit on SOE boards. But what can be particularly troubling if the role of the state in the economy were to increase is that most countries do not have rules against state support conferring unfair advantage on state-owned enterprises. They may benefit from concessionary tax rates, from lending on preferential terms, from subsidized inputs. So there is a real danger that the playing field may be tilted against the private sector as the role of state in the economy expands. Let's move on to banks. State banks have been on the rise. You can see it very clearly in the graph, which depicts assets of state-owned banks and assets of private banks in the EBRD regions. And this expansion of state banks um, took off after the financial crisis. These banks account for more, more than half of banking assets in countries such as Belarus, Russia, or Ukraine. Um, they tend to have lower return on equity and they tend to have higher levels of non-performing loans. That was particularly true after the financial crisis. There is a bright side to state banks. During the financial crisis, they were expending credit at the time when private banks were retreating. State banks are also they also have a greater risk appetite. They are more willing to to lend without requiring collateral. Here you see example from Turkey, which clearly shows that state-owned banks are less likely to require collateral, particularly in the case of young firms, firms that often do not have collateral at their disposal, and firms that often do not have credit history. So, this is the bright side of state banks. But there's also a dark side. And this dark side is related to political cycles, to electoral cycles that often lead to misallocation of credit. Um, here we look, we compare lending by state owned banks to lending by private banks in the same province, in the same province. We focus on provinces in Turkey where local elections were closely contested. And you can see here that in provinces where the mayor came from the ruling party, um, state banks were pumping credit the year before election and also in the year of the election itself why they were withholding credit from provinces where the mayor belonged to the opposition party. Of course, this experience is not unique to Turkey. There is a large literature documenting similar situation in context of other countries, for instance, Brazil or Pakistan. And even German Landesbanken are subject to electoral cycles. And this is troubling, not just because of misuse of political power but also because of inefficiency associated with lending, which is directed at firms which are not most deserving. And this comes at the cost of non-performing loans later and lower growth. Now, the final part of the report is devoted to the role of the state in green economy transition. Um, We document commitments that have been made by our countries of operations under the Paris Agreement. Many of these countries committed to lowering emission intensity, so emissions per unit of GDP. But because these countries are expected to grow, in absolute terms, many of them are on the way to increasing emissions in absolute terms. So we clearly need more ambitious commitments if we want to reach Paris Agreement goals. Countries. In our regions have adopted a lot of laws and regulations aiming at curbing emissions and indeed these laws have contributed to curbing emissions, particularly when it comes to CO2, but certainly more ambition is needed. And in the report, we discuss in detail what the state can do in the short run, in the medium run, and in the long run. In the short run, it's about finding labor-intensive green projects, so projects that can generate jobs, um, such as, for instance, retrofitting of buildings, improving energy efficiency, both residential and public buildings, building um, public transport infrastructure. In the medium run, the role of the state is to limit barriers to green transition by providing information by ensuring access to credit. And in the longer term, it's about facilitating, restructuring, creative destruction. So to conclude, the EBRD regions find themselves at the crossroads. There is an optimistic scenario where the COVID crisis will lead to improved governance, and the guiding hand of the state will help our countries go through green transition. But there is also a possibility of a pessimistic scenario, where the grabbing hand of the state will lead to more corruption, nepotism, and firms nationalized during the crisis will never be privatized again. And the increased presence of the state will tilt the playing field against the private sector. Thank you very much for your attention. And now over to you, Tony.
1: Thank you very much indeed. Uh, we'll go to our panelists, uh, Mariana Matsukato and uh, Danny Roderick in a couple of minutes, but first over to Joseph Stiglitz, who has sent us this video. Thank you.
3: It's a pleasure for me to discuss the 2020-2021 EBRD Transition Report, The State Strikes Back. The pandemic has reminded us of the importance of state of the state. We turn to the state in times of crisis, but 40 years of denigrating the role of the state has left the state less prepared to deal with a crisis such as this pandemic. COVID-19 is, in some ways, a natural experiment. The disease has affected countries all over the world some countries have done better in responding to the disease some countries have done better in responding to the economic aftermath and of course some have done worse in both dimensions this will be an area of uh, research for economists epidemiologists social scientists going forward Uh, but already we can see clearly that the successful countries have had a large and important role for the state. Today, the economy is going through structural transformations, not just in the transition countries, but in the advanced countries and the developing countries. Markets don't manage these transitions well. Over the last 40 years, we've learned why that is the case. There are inherent market failures. Capital markets often don't work. Governments need to play an important role, both through active labor market policies and industrial policies. The failure to adequately uh, uh, deal with the problem of structural transformation not only inhibits the potential for future standards of living, but also has large distributive consequences. And these distributive con- consequences, in turn, have a very big of an impact on the functioning of society. Inequalities, especially if excessive and viewed as a result of exploitation, undermine trust in society, undermine the functioning of society. The importance of trust has been pivotal in this country, in this crisis. Those societies where there was greater trust performed better. Government production of goods and services and government finance of goods and services are two distinctive aspects of the government's role in our economy. Many areas and in many countries, government enterprises have been shown to be just as effective, just as efficient as the private sector. In others, it's less so. And we have to understand both the reasons for the successes and failures of governments and the successes and failures of the private enterprises. As we emerge from the pandemic, governments will be doing lots of spending. It's important that the money do double, triple, quadruple duty. We have to build back better. And that means we have to build back greener, more equal, more resilient, more knowledge-based. For the economies in transition, often facing limited resources, the challenge will be all the greater. Build Back Better requires all parts of society. This report is a timely reminder of the key role that the state will have to play in building back better. I welcome this report, and I welcome this opportunity to share my thoughts about it. Thank you.
1: That was Joseph Stieglitz. Thank you very much indeed. We're going to turn to our panellists now. Um, Joseph Stieglitz talked about 40 years of denigrating uh, the, the the public sector. It's almost 40 years ago since Ronald Reagan spoke about the nine most terrifying words in the English language. I'm from the government and I'm here to help. We saw what happened in Russia when there was unfettered capitalism and two dozen people became richer than God and 200 million, to put it mildly, didn't. At the EBRD, we've, we understand the role that the that the state must take. We often talk about making the role effective in order to allow public, the private sector to flourish. We talk about effective state. We rarely talk about more state. We talk about better state. So, Mariana Matsukato, we are going to get more state. Is that unequivocally a good thing?
4: I was just looking for my earphones. I've left them there, but can you hear me?
1: <laughs> yes, we can hear you.
4: Amazing. So, I mean, Uh, you know, first of all, congratulations on this report. It's, you know, incredibly, how do you say, comprehensive. It it presents really interesting data. I do want to just begin with a bit of a critique, which is in fact, um, you know, directly answering your question here, which is, I think that's the wrong question. (laughs) There's sort of a self-fulfilling prophecy, right? That if you put even on your cover, a nanny state, forget, you know, issues around sexism, which is a nanny state and even framing it as a state that's too big, you're already kind of, you know, Pushing us towards one type of conversation, whereas I think actually that what's inside the report, the you know the richness of the data and the new data that actually we should be collecting and also reflecting on uh, Joseph Stiglitz's comments, we really need to be asking what kind of state we already know. By the way, from the kind of uh, you know um, how do you say controversy around the reinhardt Rogoff uh, model some time ago, that it's not you know there's no one percentage, for example, above which we should also Uh, we should all fear the size of the state going beyond, you know, that 70% or 90%. There's many countries that have a large state, but are actually quite competent and are strategic, and the state is collaborating and co-investing with the private sectors, and others that have a large state that are not doing that. So the question of what is the competence, the capabilities, the structures within state institutions, are just as important of a question as when we ask it for a private sector institution. The problem is is that if we, again, in the self-fulfilling prophecy kind of way, build up the image of the state as being so cumbersome, then we don't even ask the really important questions that the private sector asks itself when it becomes big, right? There's fantastic books called Rejuvenating the Mature Corporation, which basically means when a corporation gets large, it's going to have problems around inertia around flexibility. And that's why, you know, 30 years ago, GM thought about the multi-divisional company precisely in order to kind of, uh, you know, impede that kind of institutional inertia. But bureaucracies also need to think about that. So the real question is what kind of state? And this is where I think it's really interesting, first of all, to recognize that it's not that the state is back, it's always been back. It's often back just in the wrong way. After the financial crisis, the state was back big time, but most of the funding it put into the system went back to the financial sector itself, right? (laughs) Uh, There wasn't actually enough, say, stimulus uh, in terms of fiscal policies in the real economy to accompany the monetary policy and this massive liquidity which was injected in. Um, And that's a huge problem. But you also have countries like Italy, where I'm from, that have a very high, say, debt to GDP, but the state you know the real problem with the state is it's not actually investing in all the areas that produce long-run growth so Italy's productivity has been actually quite low because both the private sector and the public sector have not kind of been doing their job so even though Italy's deficit has been lower than Germany's for the last 20 years its debt to GDP is much higher because the denominator hasn't been growing so the real question that your report forces us to ask is what are the key determinants of long-term growth and what does it mean for state structures, state institutions, state capacity, private public collaborations. And I don't really see the question or I don't think the question should be is what is the optimal kind of size? Is it too big? What are we gonna do about the nanny state? And there just to go, because I know we're only supposed to speak five minutes and I've got a minute and a half left. I think the real questions we should be asking are you know, exactly what does it mean to have a symbiotic co-investment you know, sharing of risks, sharing of rewards between public and private institutions, but especially what do we know about those key competencies and capabilities that are required within state institutions uh, in order to drive, you know, innovation and innovation and growth that leads to a more sustainable, inclusive economy. And, you know, that means like literally getting your hands dirty and learning how to actually design Uh, you know, public procurement, so government as purchaser, not just as investor, in such a way that really crowds in bottom-up experimentation, but also what does it mean to design a public bank in order for it not just to be handing out money to whichever company or industry is yelling, you know, help, help, I need help because I'm not very good, to actually really be you know catalyzing growth in the real economy and actually creating conditions for example conditional loans to make sure that sectors say like the steel sector which globally is asking for money that there be conditions attached attached sorry to those sectors transforming this is something that the kfw public bank did recently in germany where the steel sector received a loan conditional on them lowering their material content which they did through repurpose. Reuse and recycle techniques, making the German steel sector one of the most innovative in the world because the state had dynamic conditions. Similarly, state-owned enterprises in Italy, for example, we had EDI, the Instituto della ricostruzione italiana, back in the day, and it had three different phases, public not politicized, public super politicized, you know, all the parties got their hands in it, and then privatized. And the privatization phase killed it, they cut all their R&D basically, (laughs) Uh, but also the public politicized uh, phase killed it. So what does it mean to actually create that kind of DARPA type public, but not politicized strategic, mission-oriented public institution, whether we're talking about a state-owned enterprise or a public bank, those are the questions we need to be asking. And I have more to say, but I've gone beyond my five minutes. So I will hand it over to Danny.
1: Mariana, thank you very much indeed. There's a lot of questions there about, especially the balance between private and public that we need to get to. But Danny, can we can we hear your maybe just initial impressions on the report? Perhaps again through the prism of caring or grabbing state that was put in the conclusions that you saw from from Beata in her presentation. Thank you, Danny.
5: Thank you. I, I, I think I think it's a, it's a great report, and I think it's it's wonderful uh, to see uh, the EBRD um, coming um, and and. and and confronting uh, these issues um, uh, head on. So um, I'm very, very happy with the report. I, I guess maybe the first thing I'll say is, something about the nature of the panel which I think reflects um, where the wind is blowing, right? I mean I, you know it's uh, here you have a report on 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 the state and the market and and the three commentators are Joe Stiglitz, Mariana Matsukato and myself. Where are the libertarians? Where are the small government um, you know supporters? Actually maybe you should have had them, but I mean I think there, there is something here which is clear that uh, is sort of you know it's it's clear uh that the direction that that the wind is blowing that should not prevent us from sort of being critical and analytical and i think both mariana and Joe emphasize that that we really need to understand uh when the state works and when when it doesn't i think mariana appropriately emphasized that it's, it's really not that much about the the size or the quantity of the state uh, it's about sort of you know much more the qualitative features and and what the um, what the what the state uh, does and how it interacts with the with the private sector. But maybe let me start with a point about the quantity of the of the state or the size of the state. And I think this is a bit of a uh, you know a personal intellectual um, uh, autobiography. Uh, many many years ago, I became obsessed with this correlation uh, that I stumbled upon, uh, which is that uh, regardless of you know how you cut the data and which sample of countries you were looking at, uh, countries that were more exposed to international trade uh, happened to have um, larger governments measured by uh, the size of government uh, spending in GDP. So this is very much about the size of the state. More open government, more open economies had larger governments, uh, and and that sort of was a bit of a puzzle because you normally expect that country, well, you know, countries that are sort of playing more by the rules of the world economy, more exposed to trade, should have smaller governments. If you think about, you know, the, that in the in the very traditional, um, uh, you know, economistic way that it's really about the markets and, and and governments as being substitutes. But I think, that, of course, you know, the key, the, the key, the key. You know conclusion from from that literature was that you know there was actually that markets and the state uh in that areas and so many other areas were actually complements and i think that's sort of the, the you know a, a critical message that you you know the state had grown uh, more uh, in countries that were more exposed to international trade and more exposed to international shocks precisely because the state was providing a kind of a social insurance function and that was uh, either through transfers in the more advanced countries or through more public employment uh, in the uh, in the less uh, um, developing co- developed countries where you didn't have the transfer systems in place, but the state was essentially acting as a shock absorber uh, in countries, particularly smaller countries that are much more uh, volatile due to international uh, exposure to, to international uh, international trade. Um, now, so that's, I think that the general idea there that there is, you know, we really think about sort of, we should really think about this as a complementary relationship rather than a substitute one, I think is, is critical. And I think, uh, you, know, you know, I think the, the, the report rather sort of makes that clear. But, it, you know, it, it's something that we should keep hammering onto sort of undergraduates and every wannabe economist's uh, head that, you know, the market and the state, it's always markets and the state, it's not one or the other, it's the complementarity. Um, all successful economies are are mixed economies in in, in some way. So what does the state, what's the state for? What should it be for in the future? I think one very important function obviously is is social insurance and that's sort of the function that welfare states have have developed uh, extensively. But it's also about, you know, restructuring, helping the economy restructure. Um, uh, And I think sort of, I think Mariana's work is very important here. Um, And, you know, in the report itself, restructuring in the direction of uh, new, uh, you know, green uh, industries is is appropriately emphasized, because this is where the state will have to play a big role, fostering restructuring in the direction of green industries. I would emphasize one additional area where restructuring um, is very important, requires a big government role. Um, And that's um, dealing with uh, what has become now a universal phenomenon in labor markets, the phenomenon of labor market polarization, uh, that good jobs are disappearing uh, in the middle of the skill distribution. And COVID-19 of course has has made that situation much, much worse uh, by essentially, um, uh, uh, um, you know, aggravating the collapse of, of, of jobs and earnings in the middle of the skill distribution. Um, And I think this is a a kind of problem that the traditional welfare state or even traditional industrial policies are not well uh, uh, um, uh, prepared to tackle. So I think we need a variety of You know, active labor market policies, directed innovation policies, sort of new style industrial policies are really targeting the increase of of, of good jobs. I think this is a challenge um, I would put at sort of at the same level as the challenge of of accelerating the green transition. So that would be sort of, you know, additional important role. Now, finally, let me just bring up an important area where, where I think there is an important challenge here for the EBRD. Um, EBRD is special in many ways because, as far as I know, it's the only multilateral lending agency um, which um, is committed to um, supporting countries that are um, multi-party democracies and, and pluralistic societies. Um, that's, I think it's the only country where the statutes explicitly make uh, those as, as conditions. Now, you know, it it also is a sign of the times that this went into the statutes when in the 90s, when everybody was hoping and expecting that um, Eastern, uh, Central, Eastern European countries uh, would essentially become both market economies and political democracy. And that was sort of, you know, the end of history. But we're living in an era where that obviously is not happening on the political side, um, where um, uh, there is a significant retreat from democracy. If we're talking about how do we look at governance of state banks or state enterprises or or governance of regulation, you simply cannot, you know, not get into issues of of accountability, democratic accountability. And the challenge of EBRD is that that's explicitly in its statutes um, and its actual practice is not very consistent with those statutes because the two largest um, uh, clients of the EBRD are Turkey and Egypt at present. uh, both uh, countries that um, are, are listed as not free by uh, Freedom House. So we know their problems. Uh, together, they account for about a quarter of the loan portfolio of the EBRD. And that's an issue. That's a challenge. And, and how the EBRD has to take that when it's taking governance um, and of state enterprises and state banks seriously on board, um, how it takes into account democratic governance and accountability as well. I think it's going to be a very big challenge for the institution.
1: Danny, thank you very much indeed. I'll ask Beata if she just wants to come back very briefly on that first, on that, that last point, obviously, the, the the role that the EBRD does take in promoting the private sector and dominant, dominantly so, Beata.
2: So let me just give you a quick reaction to, to Mariana's comment. You know, what kind the right question is what kind of state we want and what are the enablers? And our last year's transition report spoke very much to that question by um, documenting governance gap between the countries where we are operating and the best practice. And as you know, the Central European countries entered the European Union, they lost the external anchor. They lost the enthusiasm for reforms. Um, so, The key question is, how do you energize the reform zeal? How do you create an environment in which there is an incentive uh, to improve governance? So let me throw this question back at Mariana. And um, to react to what Danny said, um, we invest in places like Turkey and Egypt because we hope that we can improve people's lives. We invest mainly in private sector we help these countries uh, facilitate green transition we help improve services and uh, create inclusive opportunities so we hope that we can be a force for good there
1: yes thank you very much indeed Uh but I wanted to, to to go back to Mariana. You you wrote a very nice piece in, 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 in Time where it was based set in 2023. Uh, that's the one. COVID was behind us, it was done and dusted. Uh everybody lived happily ever after. It might not be quite as easy as that, but how can you can you sum up? I mean, there, there were a lot of carrots and sticks about how uh policies were forged in order to deal with the 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 problems that that, that the world faced then. And can you go over some of those carrots and some of those sticks?
4: Sure. And the point of the article is not to say it's easy. It's exactly the opposite to dream. What would it look like if we actually welcomed the difficulties that COVID presents us? And by the way, that's why I really don't like the word facilitating. I'm Italian and, you know, uh, Italian comes from Latin and, you know, facile means easy. And the idea that the state's role is to facilitate completely misses the trick. And, and, and I know in the report, which I do actually, you know, really congratulate you, it's a fantastic report, but we have to be critical. Um, you know, The word facilitation in the future, take it out of all your reports, uh, take out the word de-risking. What we actually need is to welcome the uncertainties, to share the risks and not to paint this picture of the state de-risking the cool kind of risk-taking private sector institutions. What you actually need is patient long-term finance that's strategically oriented that is again you know investing productively in-house etc which then can really crowd in say private sector investment but this idea that one is enabling the other facilitating the other de-risking the other just sets up the whole kind of partnership to be if we think of marriage as an abusive <laughs> marriage and not a good one uh, on both sides by the way so really you know what does it mean to crowd in private sector investment which you were asking about before really means to be kind of ambitious right when this business tends to invest when it sees an opportunity you can take away all the tax you want whether it's reducing corporate income tax capital gains tax or devise really fancy R&D tax credits you won't get investment to happen unless you see an opportunity so what the piece talks about is in, in time is what would it look like if we actually take these multiple crises that we're living through which is a health pandemic, massive crisis, which is causing an economic crisis, but it began as a health crisis. The climate crisis, huge, and we're not actually <laughs> dealing with it properly and quickly enough, but also the, you know, the financial system is in one crisis after another, and we're not actually fixing that. We still have in many countries like the UK where I'm living, a ratio of private debt to disposable income extremely high to the same extent it was just before the financial crisis and yes that's what caused the financial crisis it wasn't public debt um anyway so what would it look like to take on these multiple crises seriously and i begin with not only that biden wins the election so tick that box we've done that uh but also what would it mean to actually then for example and i go through different examples one example would be take this really ambitious concrete challenge we have which is the vaccine of course this week we have new Um, thinking about that, uh, sorry, new news about that, and make it a proper symbiotic collaboration between public and private. Because too often we have parasitic predatory public-private partnerships, to be really, really frank in the health sector. So you have countries like the US spending 40 billion a year in health innovation, and then the patent system, intellectual property rights get abused. They're too wide, they're too strong, they're too upstream. They cause what William Baumol talked about as unproductive entrepreneurship, a lot of rent seeking. And the free market, by the way, and Adam Smith, if you read him carefully, was about freeing the economy of rent, not of the state. So this kind of rent seeking that we see a lot, you talked about corruption and kind of nepotism in the state, but you get a lot of corruption and you know, rent seeking and value extraction in the private sector. How do you actually govern say the innovation system for COVID therapies, for the COVID vaccine in such a way that really fosters collective intelligence, a, a really great word that I'm increasingly finding myself using, and that means really governing the innovation system, not just financing stuff, governing it for the public interest. So that means both the IPR issues I just mentioned, patents, but also the prices of the drugs. Apparently, this new Pfizer vaccine is going to cost a uh, $30 per dosage. You need two dosages. Um, and you know that's not going to work for most people. And so what does it mean also to have a collaboration which also reflects the immense amount of public contributions that have been you know um, made? Two different types of therapies and vaccines to make sure the prices are right, but again, that we govern those intellectual property rights. I also talk about the need to talk much more about directionality of investments. So, you know, it's 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 one thing to talk about inequality and climate change, it's another thing to design our policies, our industrial strategies, our innovation policies, the procurement policies that I mentioned before, designed actually to solve big public problems. That's how we got to the moon and back. It wasn't just NASA, there was lots of private sector investment, General Electric, Honeywell, Motorola, invested and innovated, but they were kind of crowded in through well-designed procurement, which helped NASA, not only with its own investments, but in the collaborations with the private sector to get there. Lots of different sectors invested, nutrition, textiles, electronics, the whole software industry was a, a spillover of the moon landing. What would it look like to have that moonshot mission-oriented approach towards you know, ridding the oceans of plastic, having carbon neutral cities, um, you know, and you know, fighting right now with COVID, not only uh, the, the health, you know, the health side, but also the digital divide or loneliness of people who are alone. Unlike me, I've got too many kids in the house, I'd love to kick them out. A lot of people are literally alone under lockdown. What does it mean to tackle loneliness and the digital divide with the same kind of ambition that we tackle these more technological problems that means a different kind of state it means a state that doesn't make a list of kinds of firms to support you know SMEs versus other uh, firms or lists of sectors random lists often but actually to say all firms all sectors all different types of actors public private and third sector are required to tackle the biggest challenges of our time which the SDGs the, the sustainable development goals are really well-placed to construct the challenge part of it, but what does it mean to transform them into kind of targeted moonshots that really require that intersectoral approach that requires a redesign of the policy. So part of the Time article talks about that. And also, you know we do need leadership, but we especially need a different narrative. There is currently a very problematic narrative that wealth is created in the private sector. And I fear that some institutions like your own sometimes kind of, uh, 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 you know, replicate that kind of thinking and the state is there at best to, as you talked about in the beginning, leveling the playing field, fixing market failures, redistributing, you know, what we actually need is collective value creation. And only when we admit that that's what we need, that the state itself can create value, co-create value, co-shape markets, not just fix them, will we ever get the kind of investments intra organizationally, Inside, inside state institutions that allow them to really act in that dynamic way. And that's precisely what we got in some developing countries during COVID like Vietnam and Kerala, who actually dealt with the crisis much better than some advanced industrialized country, uh, countries, which have actually over the last decades outsourced most of their capacity to say the big four consulting companies. Again, the UK, you know, Deloitte, PWC, McKinsey, they're basically running not only Brexit, but the COVID. <laughs> A crisis, and that's not a good way to manage a
1: crisis. Thank you, Mariana. I'm going to ask Beata in a second to come back on the question of whether we pray too intensely at the crisis. altar of the uh, private sector. But Danny, first, maybe on that on a similar line to that uh, argument, you've said in the past that companies pay lip service to ESG, and you can't really rely on enlightened self-interest for companies to 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 do the right thing, if that's, to put it very simply. Um, so how do you in, 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 in incentivize that? And you talk a lot about democratizing capitalism or democratic capitalism, what do you actually mean by that?
5: I think my, my criticism of um, uh, ESG I think is, is one that I think these days is, is, is widely shared, that, that we can't just let um, Um, uh, corporations um, engaged in in their version of stakeholder capitalism uh, without very strong uh, regulatory um, uh, state on that sets uh, the rules of the game. And I think more enlightened uh, corporations and firms understand that because they don't want to be in the business of defining what's in the common good and that they'd rather have clear regulations uh, that the government st- st- sets, whether in terms of, you know, their impact on the community, on the labor force, on climate change, environment, and so forth. So I think t- for too long, um, you know, the state, um, uh, you know, d- deserted its responsibility, gave up its responsibility to enact those regulations. And then, you know, corporations responding to their own consumers and their general uh, public clam- clamor had to sort of, you know, in a way, Uh, start to fill in. I think this again reflects the notion that Mariana you know referred to before. It's not that the state disappeared, it's just sort of viewed its its function very differently, was pushing on a very different agenda. So I think you know the more there is ultimately again a complementarity between enlightened um, businesses that see that in the long term they can prosper and thrive only to the extent that they pursue uh, investments and in activities that are consistent with you know, good citizenship in their local community, there's a complementarity with that long, longer-term enlightened self-interest, um, and public authorities and governments uh, that are um, uh, responding to um, uh, to general um, uh, electoral demand for having uh high standards in terms of you know uh labor standards minimum wages uh, uh sectoral standards um uh, environmental um uh, regulations um and, and 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 the like and and those particularly in in new industries and in the gig economy still have to uh be worked out but it it'll, it'll have to be part of the the sort of you know the, the new regulatory uh, set of arrangements uh but not in lieu of you know, firms doing things on their own, again, as, as part of a complementary set of, of arrangements. I, I do think that um, the you mentioned about democrat, democratizing firms or capitalism, I do think that in general, we need a much stronger voice of workers um, in the workplace. Uh, I don't think it's, uh, it's the only thing or, or that on its own would solve these problems. But a lot of decisions that firms take uh, are uh, essentially driven by an agenda that does not necessarily take into account, you know, broader uh, community interests. And I think having workers represented, whether it's a it's a decision on technology adoption or investment or uh, human resource practices, having a strong worker voice, I think, is is very important, um, both for defining the objectives of firms and also taking, you know, decisions that are good for the long term. So just like, you know, we believe in democratic accountability for in the political sphere, not because uh, participation and democracy is good in and of itself, but we, because we also think that it results in better decision-making uh, when you have a much more diverse set of interests represented. I think the same goes for, for firms and the governance of firms, uh, that we have a broader set of, of, of voices that firms can actually be governed uh, for a better end and for better.
1: Uh, Thank you. Mariana, you wanted to come back on ESG, I think.
4: Yeah, I mean, um, one of the weaknesses, I think, of the ESG, well, actually, I should say, one of the things that must complement the attempt to get better ESG indicators is actually to bring the concept of purpose outside of a siloed corporate governance area, right? This whole notion that we need more purpose and stakeholder value, but put it at the center of the system so this issue around conditionalities that I was talking about before shouldn't be seen as a penalty or a bad thing. It's, it's, it's really about putting purpose at the center of partnerships. So the state provides you know, subsidies, guarantees, investments like the 40 billion I mentioned before that the US government uh, provides on health innovation but governments globally are providing subsidies and guarantees putting the notion of kind of a social pact at the center of that, which, you know, we use the word conditionality, but we can think of more creative words at the center means putting purpose at the system. So if we want a more inclusive, sustainable form of growth, then of course, during the COVID recovery, the bailouts should be conditional on, you know, better working conditions, uh, uh, reducing carbon emissions, not using tax havens, all things, by the way, that are happening. So France has put conditions on Renault, the car manufacturer in Air France, the airline to reduce carbon emissions as part of the recovery scheme. Uh, Denmark said that companies using tax havens can't access the recovery. That should be the more normal way of doing things. Because if we're going to build back better, not just with COVID, but build back in such a way that actually we're investing and innovating together, sharing the risks and investments towards the SDG kind of metrics, that requires a different relationship. And I don't think we have much Or many good indicators for what kind of relationship do we have. I mentioned, you know, abusive (laughs) partnerships before, but if you speak to any biologist and you just use the word ecosystem, they'll stop you and say, sorry, what do you mean? You know, predator, prey, symbiotic, mutualistic, uh, parasitic. And I think we actually, especially reflecting on the last decades of problematic partnerships, again, in the UK, our PFI schemes were not very good. (laughs) They helped to actually, you know, undermine the health system. These are uh, private financing initiatives. What does it mean to actually have better indicators around purpose of how public, private, and increasingly third sector institutions work together?
1: Thank you very much, uh, Marianne. Just to remind you, we're uh, we're at the launch of the EBRD's 2020 transition report, State Strikes Back. Uh, Beata Javocic, um, we've heard from Marianne who talks about the who doesn't buy the, the, the proposition of the lumbering. State and the ad, uh, and the agile private sector, and that the innovation does in fact come from uh, the state as much as from the private sector. We talk in our report about the fact that the state-owned enterprises tend to be comfortable and stable, but they they're not innovative. So, how, what what can what can be done to actually spur greater innovation in the state-owned sector if that's import, going to be important now, which I presume it is.
2: Well, thank you, Tony. Um, Let me first start with a few reactions to to what has been said before I come back to the issue of innovation. Um, So contrary to how many people interpret our cover, actually, you know, we tried not to take a stand on whether SOEs and state banks are good, bad or ugly. Um, We showed both the bright side and the dark side And because we've been criticized from both sides for being too positive and too negative, I think we got the balance right. Um, You know, Tony, you also asked, are we as an institution praying too much at the altar of the private sector? Um, You know, we are in the business of systemic change, of transition. That's a work that has almost you know, left the vocabulary of the economics profession. But actually transition is indeed what our countries need. Some need transition still more to market. Some need green transition. Actually, most of them need green transition. And our work with the private sector, it's a way of uh, achieving this, having them achieve this transition. Um, We do try uh, to improve governance of state-owned enterprises you know, we do work with private public uh, partnership. And actually, you know, one of the byproducts of PPPs is that they limit opportunities for corrupt behavior. So they are actually often unattractive to corrupt uh, governments. Uh, And um, now you mentioned also the title of the report. Um, I think Mariana interpreted this as as saying, you know, we want the state to come back. Actually, we think of it a bit as a warning, right? If the state comes back, is it going to be a you know the caring hand or the grabbing hand? So you know the trick is in details, and it, it brings us back to this question of, of, of governance. Um, now on innovation, what do we see as in our countries, but also what academic research shows uh, shows when looking at SOEs in China. They tend to be less innovative. They tend, so in terms of number of patents, in terms of likelihood of innovating, of introducing new products or new processes. Um, they tend to, as we document in the report, um, to employ more risk averse people. And uh, I wonder whether perhaps there, there is some Connection there, you know, innovation requires risk taking. Um, So I think it's the the question of how to make SOEs more innovative um, should be perhaps directed at Mariana. Perhaps she has the answer because I, you know, the image of SOEs that emerges from our report they are the automatic stabilizers, they provide stable jobs, perhaps not the best-paying jobs, perhaps not the most exciting jobs, um, and they keep these jobs during downturns, but they are not going to be the engine of growth uh, for the future.
1: Marianne, do you want to come back on that, on the, on the fact that state-owned enterprises can eventually be driving forces of innovation, or are they just a bit a bit solid?
4: Yeah, I mean, it depends, and in fact, Beth, I mean, I, I completely agree with you that You know, my my point was not that I think you think that the state should come (laughs) back, but that um, it's just the wrong question. The state is back. The state has been back. It was back after the financial crisis. There's huge amounts of corporate welfare happening around the world. There's plenty of waste from state budgets around the world, big states that are, you know, wasting the opportunity. So what COVID presents us is the ability to stop um, you know, thinking, you know, is it the state, is it the market? And by the way, the market to me is the wrong word. The market is an outcome of how business, which is not the market, business is structured, how the state is structured and how they interrelate. Those governance issues all determine what kind of market you know, structures we actually get. Um, in terms of state-owned enterprises, again, it comes back to exactly what you were saying. It sort of depends. So if you have a state-owned enterprise, which is kind of hiring the wrong people, it's too slow, doesn't have proper metrics, of course, it's gonna be a disaster. That would also be true in the private sector. It'd be true in any public institution, even inside the BBC, say, which is a public broadcaster, right? It's, it's not about a state-owned enterprise as such. Any economic organization that doesn't think about its intra-organizational governance, how to be flexible, adaptable, again, problem-oriented, having, you know, being able to attract really great people, it's gonna have a problem. And there's nothing about the state that's gonna make it less able or more able to do that. Like there's nothing inside the private sector that inevitably, deterministically will make it good or bad at that, it all depends. And so that's why I mentioned that example of the state-owned enterprise in Italy, which after World War two uh, you know, was actually, actually from before that, unfortunately it was Mussolini's uh, idea to set up EDI, but it did have these three different structures. And when it was really a dynamic organization and able to attract the top managers in Italy, wanted to work inside E.D. it was an honor, because it was seen as really having this developmental kind of state trajectory. Um, It was able to do the motorway from the the north to the south, the famous Autostrada del Sole, in four years. It's nothing if you look at just how big that motorway is. Whereas today, where everything's been privatized or very problematic state structures, they can barely do the Turin-Milan motorway. Uh, they've taken much longer than four years to build that. So even a semi-simple infrastructure project needs to have a dynamic organization behind it, let alone the more, you know, much more ambitious targets we have around the SDGs and the wicked problems underneath those. So I think the opportunity with state-owned enterprises today, if I think also, say, in uh, South Africa, where both Danny and I have an advisory role, is not to say, you know, should, for example, ESCOM be privatized or not. It's what is the opportunity a country has when it actually has state ownership to move away from thinking of it just as ownership, an asset, a static situation, you own it versus the private sector owns it and to actually look at it almost as a portfolio of different types of investments that can be made within the state precisely because you own, you can govern in a dynamic way and have a portfolio perspective to transition for example an economy towards a green transition and the fact you own a big piece of that infrastructure in theory could make your job easier in practice because of incumbency effects and inertia it can do the opposite and that's precisely why you need the ebrd kind of reports panels like this ideally also more diverse danny you said that we were you know, all kind of heterodox. We're also, I think, all white on this panel, and yet some of the you know most interesting experimentation is happening in Africa today. So I just think we need as much debate and contestation, but granular about what does it mean, for example, to govern a state-owned enterprise in order to facil- facilitate a transition versus to you know status quo. And in many countries, state-owned enterprises are about the status quo, just like development banks are in Italy. Casa Depositi e Prestiti, our public bank, unfortunately, has been often just as much part of the problem instead of the solution. That example I gave of the KFW creating a tension with the private sector. Conditions on transition transformation is very different from just giving out money, right, to stay in, in place.
1: Thank you, Mariana. Um, and to the audience, please, um, your questions are coming in, we'll keep them coming. Uh, Mariana, your question about the Alto Star del Sole was a perfect segue to the next question I was going to ask Danny anyway. You said, um, uh, I think early on during the, the crisis, Danny, you, you, you wrote that when the crisis is finished, the populace will still be there and the authoritarians will still be there. So is is how do you... How, how are we going to, to, to deal with that situation? Is there in fact a danger that in this environment, the populists and the authoritarians are going to just wield more power?
5: Um, well, I mean, I, I think first, uh, you know, we have to begin with uh, you know, going um, to the roots and understanding uh, what's causing um, the, um, uh, the, 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 the rise of authoritarianism. Um, and respond appropriately. I I do think that um, even though we tend to lump together right-wing authoritarians around the world uh, in the same uh, basket, I think it's very, uh, the kind of phenomenon that we see in let's say Egypt or Turkey, two countries I mentioned earlier, and what we see in in, uh, in the United States um, uh, occasionally sort of threatens we you know we you know, we look like we might see in Europe uh, is very different that in the, you know that in developing countries what we're essentially seeing is the. Uh, is, is the is the periodic. Um, uh, um, reversion to authoritarianism in countries that have never actually established. Uh, strong liberal democratic institutions and practices in the first place. Um, And and what sort of confuses us is that, you know, many of these new authoritarians, um, not so much Egypt, but Turkey, you know, uh, Philippines or or Brazil, uh, Russia, sort of often talk with uh, the language of democracy. Um, So in in some sense, they have, um, have, they've, it's, it's, it's old traditional authoritarianism, but sort of um, uh, using a different kind of technology for appealing to mass publics and, and using uh, tools of social media, using um, uh, um, a, a sort of legitimizing role of, of, of sort of the electoral uh highly manipulated elections and so forth but otherwise i think deep down it's, it's it's not different from sort of periodic reversion to authoritarianism in countries that don't have a tradition and history of strong liberal democratic institutions i think in western advanced countries it's different i think the threat there is is, is um is is not uh from the weakness of liberal democratic institutions per se uh, I think it's the kind of uh, economic shocks and economic insecurity, and the disappearance of middle-class jobs, um, uh, particularly sort of you know regional um, adverse effects of um, of globalization, the industrialization, the many technological changes that that we've experienced that have created significant amount of economic insecurity, have created um, a big gap between the winners and losers of our sort of post-1980 types of policies. Um, So those, I think, are different. I mean, in the advanced countries, I think we need to find the economic policy tools, economic policy responses that are going to bridge these gaps. Um, I think that's the challenge. And in in some ways, it's it's easier because it's, uh, you know, trying to figure out what the right economic policies are uh, to create more inclusive societies. And there, you know, that's, I think, sort of earlier when I was talking about policies to... Um, uh, to increase the supply of good jobs, that was a key plank of that kind of, of an approach. And I do think to link it up with the with the discussion on the green uh, uh, transition, uh, I, I do think that the good jobs policy and the green transition have to go together. Just today, um, Labour Party in the UK announced uh, that they're in a new program that's explicitly Uh, Joining the, um, you know, sort of, you know, good job or employment creation with the with the green transition, I think that's that's the only way we can make sort of decarbonization broadly and socially acceptable, um, as well as addressing our sort of climate change, but doing it through um, uh, investment, uh, uh, you know, green transition investments that are also targeting the creation of good jobs, and I think that's where. You know, the slide that Beata uh, presented on the green transition that in the, in the you know, the first stage emphasizes uh, that sort of employment creating um, uh, green uh, investments. I think that's uh, particularly important. For other countries which uh, did not have a historical tradition of liberal democracy, I think it's, it's harder. And I think it's going to be, it's, it's much less we can do necessarily by economic policies uh, it's going to require much more sort of grassroots uh, action uh, on the part of of uh, Democrats in those nations, and I think it's it's going to have to be a much broader social and political movements, and not just economic policies, but it's a much harder problem.
1: Thank you very much indeed. We're going to turn to the um, questions from the floor in a couple of minutes. I just wanted to ask one more question. Are, are our public sectors are civil servants qualified enough to do this job? Um, um, it's a shame Odile's gone because I could have said something flattering about the French civil service um, schools, but uh, you know, there are the days are gone when all you needed to do in, in the UK was to go to Oxford, speak Latin and play cricket and you could run at somebody else's country or run one of the large departments of state. Those days have gone, but there are calls for reform of the civil service to make it more modern, to make it better attuned to the demands of a modern society. Are we there yet? Mariana?
4: So the reason I have a neck ache right now, and you can probably tell, <laughs> is I've set up a whole institute, a department to answer that question. So we have, um, it's called the, I, I, I happen to have all this propaganda near me. I promise I didn't place it on purpose. <laughs> the Institute for Innovation and Public Purpose. And the whole idea is if we are gonna have capable and creative bureaucracies, and you know, there's, there should be nothing about the term creative bureaucracy to make people laugh, right? we have gotten into the idea that the word bureaucratic is a negative word. It's because we have the wrong bureaucracy. So if we want a capable and creative bureaucracy, capable, competent states, mission-oriented states, ones that are able to really tackle a Green New Deal in a collaborative way with the private sector, crowding in private finance, um, et cetera, all the things we've talked about, you need certain types of capabilities and capacity. And you don't actually get there by using words like at best, you're gonna facilitate the creativity and the value creation in the private sector. So we've put, for example, public value, the concept of public value and public purpose at the center of a new curriculum. We're trying to get rid of the old curriculum for civil servants, which is all based on public choice theory and new public management which has actually convinced civil servants that government failure is even worse than market failure (laughs) so be careful take up as little space as possible fix the little market failures when they exist and get the hell out of the way and even though market failures do exist and of course we need to be fixing market failures it's very hard to justify the kind of capacities and capabilities that we i'm sure all think are important if your role is to just bandage things up you just need a whole box of bandages if you're going to co-create, co-shape, and to really help catalyze, you know, different kinds of words, catalyze a green transition, be mission-oriented, et cetera, that requires very different types of capabilities, including issues that I mentioned before around design thinking, bringing design thinking towards long-term planning, instead of thinking of them as two opposites, redesigning procurement to really crowd in those bottom-up solutions being able to experiment. So sandboxes, policy sandboxes are really important. So you learn what works, what doesn't. It means you have to be flexible and adaptable when you learn what doesn't work. One of the reasons by the way that DARPA was so successful and DARPA is quite famous as a public institution because it came up with the internet, (laughs) Uh, not a bad innovation is not just because it funds stuff but it knows when to turn the tap off. Right? So when do you stop funding something? When do you realize that there's bottlenecks and you're getting nowhere and there's just a lot of inertia and you're just kind of stuck? Um, so all those issues are, are just as important in public and private institutions, but the current curriculum that we have, the training that we have for civil servants is wrong. So you know, Che Guevara used to say, we need kind of new thinking, the new man, the new woman. I think that's true. You can't just have new policy, better policy without new mindsets. And you know we have strategic management, decision sciences, organizational behavior, all these funky great classes and the top MBA programs in the world. We need just as much creativity to be driving the civil service and, and, and less outsourcing. I'm seeing a huge problem in outsourcing governments worldwide where the, the, the interesting things get outsourced to say consulting companies or other types of private institutions. Of course, we need public-private relationships. One of your questions here on the side I saw um, was about that. Of course, it's all about public-private, but the public sector needs to be investing in its own brain and not outsourcing its brain. Some things are fine to outsource, but don't outsource your brain.
1: Mariana, thank you very much. Unless either of you want to come back on that or any other issue, I think um, Beata does, but then we, we will go to the questions. So, Beata.
2: Just a, a few reactions. You know, in many cases, we know what to do, right? So, you know, picking winners has been discredited, but now we know we have a direction, green transition. So in a sense, the issue of picking winners, um, because it's it's less of an issue because we know we want to go in the green direction. Uh, You know, before governments were criticized for protecting infant industries, rightly so, Now it's all about infant firms, about young firms, about startups, venture capital. So that's another area uh, where governments can get active, where we know the payoff is there. Um, Barjana talked about initial conditions. In our countries, many SOEs are, for instance, in the coal sector. governments and state-owned enterprises can play a role in winding down um, these stranded assets. You know, Tony, uh, uh, sorry, Danny talked about um, creating jobs as a way of making green transition acceptable. You know, we know that it's better to protect workers, not jobs, that we need to allow this creative destruction to happen. but you know, the key question is, in everything you do, how to turn the tap off. And I think that's the hardest problem of all.
5: Can I add just one thing here? I mean, it's, um, I think when we talk about government capacity and, and the capacity of the um, public sector to achieve things, too often we take that capacity as, as a given, as an exogenous thing, as a, as a constraint on being able to do things. I'd like us to think about capacity as something that is built um, and and that you don't take for for granted. There was something very important that Joe said in his uh, in his remarks in the video is that basically we've denigrated the state uh, for decades and 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 you know, is it a surprise that the state doesn't rise to the challenge um, as a result of that? I, I think that's that's part of the problem. Now, every country in the world that I, you know, that I know of, um, regardless of um, level of income, level of corruption, political system, and aggregate and average level of government capacity, typically there is some part of the bureaucracy, some part of the state uh, that actually works well. Um, uh, that, that, you know, it's, it's remarkable the heterogeneity in, in, in performance uh, across different public agencies. And often, uh, we don't know why that is so. I mean, there's an example. I mean, you know, we, we talk about industrial policy, picking winners not working, right? I mean, that's, a, that's the general thing. Look at the country that has been sort of the, the you know, sort of um, example number one, illustration number one of failed industrial policy and infant industry protection, Argentina, right? The country that has stagnated uh, for decades. It was one of the richest countries around the turn of previous century. You know, even there, you, know, you, you go and look, for example, how the, Argent- the Argentinian um, Agricultural Technology Innovation Fund works with the private sector uh, to invest in non-traditional crops and generate new technologies. It's essentially industrial policy that what it is doing, uh, but it's working with sort of you know, non-traditional crops in, in the agricultural sector, working very closely uh, with the producers themselves. It's extremely successful. And that's one of the reasons why crop you know, uh, Argentina has been so successful in, um, in, 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 in exporting uh, new crops and, on, on world markets. Um, and there are sort of similar, you know, what sociologists call pockets of bureaucratic efficiency, you know, in, in basically everywhere. Uh, um, and I, I think often it is, you know, just another example. You know. Many of us remember how monetary policy and hyperinflation is really sort of was an example of you know how badly uh, monetary policy was run in many countries. Um, and very quickly we turned over central banks into highly competent uh, organizations. I think in there one big big um, uh, uh, change was that you know we basically prioritized certain things very clearly and, and gave central banks very clear. Um, uh, objectives so part of it is actually be, being very clear about what the objective of the agency is prioritizing it uh in in uh, in, in 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 the government's overall uh, uh portfolio of things um and 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 the and the and the capacity to get things done is is built over time and the trust and credibility is built over time when agencies are are empowered with with uh, relatively clear objectives in this kind of iterative collaborative type of, type of fashion. So let's not talk about you know, government you know, capacity and effectiveness as something that even in very low income countries that you either have it or you don't, uh, but it's really just you know, saying that these are challenges that governments have to meet. Um, a public sector has, has a role to play. Uh, let's learn from other countries to some extent best practices might help, but a lot of it is just going to be responding to highly contextual uh, challenges um, uh, at home. And I I think, you know, that's that's the kind of experience and and, and, and knowledge that can only be acquired by actually doing the stuff.
1: Danny, thank you very much indeed. We've got about 15, 10 to 15 minutes before I will ask you to give your parting thoughts, but we do want to take some questions from the floor. There are quite a few, so I'll do them quite quickly. Um, There's a question from Roman Prostovich, a colleague from the International Finance Corporation. What do you think about digitalization? Does it lead towards a more centralized state controlled economy or to a decentralized networks based economy? Would anybody like to take that maybe?
4: It depends how you govern it. I mean, <laughs> we actually have a new uh, project we're doing with the Omidyar Foundation on that. It's a project on algorithmic rents. Um, so, you know, how you actually govern a digital platform can foster um rent seeking and value extraction or can really foster what i was talking about before in terms of collective intelligence um so it depends i mean of course we know that naturally these platforms can um, you know because they're driven by network effects and increasing returns you can easily get monopolies but it's not just about breaking up the monopolies it's about how do you um govern the platform itself and, and, and there's some really interesting experiments on this increasingly just like with the climate mitigation at the local level. So in the um, city of Barcelona in Spain, the mayor, Ada Colau, brought in hackers into the city uh, government. And in a project called Decode, they started to try to find, you know, well, the question they were asking is when we create data, and we create data all the time, right? Data is not static. Every time you click on something, you create data. Um, how can the city actually benefit from that data that's been created to improve the welfare state, like public transport, public education, public health, um, digital divide kind of questions. But they had to create a new institution. There was nothing that would naturally have enabled the city to be proactive and not reactive with this data creation. And they are you know, increasingly thinking of this almost as like a, a, a common resource where data is um, interpreted and um, understood, but also proactive new kind of technologies being used to, um, to govern that relationship also with the private sector in such a way that benefits specifically, in this case, it was actually public transport. Instead, states are often on the back end thinking just about things after they arise, right? The privacy problem, or how do we tax big tech, or how do we break up big tech and not necessarily on the proactive side. And given that most of the technology I already mentioned the internet, but a lot of AI, definitely, you know, GPS, you know, what would Uber be without GPS? Um, lots of that technology was funded by the public sector. What does it mean then to govern that technology in the public interest? And it's similarly true with energy, just because you invest in renewable energy, it doesn't actually mean it's going to benefit citizens, just because you invest In medicines, it doesn't mean it's actually gonna benefit citizens. You have to govern those processes in such a way that really has the public interest and the common good in mind. And one of your questions I saw was actually on this concept of the public good. It's very important, the concept of the public good, but unfortunately in economics, it's a very narrow concept. It's really just to fix a problem around, say, positive externalities. I think the Vatican's use, for example, of the common good. We're actually working with the Vatican. I know Danny is as well. Um, we're working on them precisely on how do you make rigorous this concept of the common good. That's actually about reimagining our future and what we want to build together. It's not just about fixing a problem because the private sector is not investing in it. Um, anyway, I think we need more reimagining about digital platforms. and how. Beata? I may just
2: jump in. You know, if digitalization makes data more accessible and leads to greater transparency, it can contribute to better functioning of the state in the last year's report we have shown that rollout of 3G technology which made uh, access to data easier made people more critical of their governments but only in countries where there is no internet censorship. So information is power, transparency uh, and information enable people to put pressure on the government.
1: there is a question directly for Danny here. Which is from Jens Lundsgaard. Why is Danny not talking about competitiveness as a driver
5: for innovation? Danny, why not? You know, competition uh, is a driver of innovation. Um, uh, In some cases, too much competition can be bad for innovation. Uh, In theory, the relationship between the two is 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 ambiguous. Um, A lot of the innovation. I think Mar- Mariana in her work has, has emphasized, and as she's mentioned earlier today, a lot of the innovation is, um, uh, is, um, uh, is driven by the public sector. I mean, let, let's just take the, the, the most recent example of the, the, co- the COVID vaccine, right? I mean, it's an interesting case, you know, sort of, uh, you know, is that, um, was that driven by competition? I mean, the German partner received about $450 million from the German government in R&D support. Um, so it was at least the German leg of this research was heavily funded by, by the government. Um, uh, Pfizer itself didn't receive any r and support, but received a, a kind of a market commitment on the part of the government. The government committed to buy um, uh, you know, a certain amount of product if, if it had passed stage three trials. Um, With the government, on its own, been able to do this? Absolutely not. I mean, the kind of human capital research capacity that's built in Pfizer is, is absolutely essential. And I think we need um, a, a well-constituted market economy um, uh, for that reason. But you know, you look at all these, you know, these successes, it's, it's the what's intriguing and interesting is the is the combination, is the is the way in which um, private firms have, have worked in a way that's been supported appropriately. Uh, by by public systems of, of of support that that you get uh, you get the results. And thank you very much,
1: uh, Danny. There's a couple of questions. One from uh, Stefka Slavova, um, maybe to be Beata, talking about: Will there be a redistribution um, um, post COVID? A new social contract and linked to that comes from Karlin Mitrov, who says, Beata's point about the caring state is valid, but caring for whom after the 2008 crisis, most of the care ended up in the pockets of 0.1%. How will the COVID episode be different, Beata?
2: Thank you, Tony. Well, different societies have different preferences. Um, so the push for redistribution and the new social contract you know, will depend on the preferences. Um, I think most people understand that more redistribution means higher taxes. And perhaps many people would be prepared to pay higher taxes if they consider them fair. And I think um, that brings us back to the discussion about taxation of multinationals, about you know, curbing transfer pricing, uh, shifting of profits, and it's, and the discussion about uh, taxation of tech giants, and you know there are there is an OECD proposal on on how to reform um, international taxation. Uh, it is from end of last year. So far, it hasn't uh, received a lot of support, but that may change. And you know we may see um, renegotiation of social contract. I I would think that. Um, COVID exposed, you know, why zero hour contracts, why gig economy are great when things are going well, but not so great when going get stuff. So I I would expect to see some changes when it comes to labor law. And, you know, also I would expect on this side of the Atlantic greater regulation when it comes uh, to environmental issues. I think that, you know, uh, 20 years of Uh, counting on firms to voluntarily improve their environmental performance have shown that not enough has happened.
1: Thank you very much. We'll take just one last question from the floor. Uh, We've gone into this uh, to a certain extent, but what about political capture? In European countries, bureaucratic efficiency is probably not the, the main problem, but vested interest influencing state action, car industry, oil industry, nuclear industry. How do you insulate the state from this sort of vested interest? Issue. We would like to go with that.
5: Well, let me let me start. I mean, I I think you know this is. Um, I mean, there's no area of economic policy uh, where governments don't confront the dual challenge of one, asymmetric information that the people that they're trying to regulate know more about the specific circumstances that the government does, and second. Um, what the questioner asked: the um, the, the, the likelihood that uh, those who are regulated or um, the, you know powerful vested interests in the private sector will tend to capture, will try to capture um, the um, uh, the political process. Now, the point I want to make is that these two uh, po- possible reasons for for policy failure exist in every domain of government policy. Uh, it exists in education policy, exists in fiscal and monetary policy, exists in infrastructure policy, exists in tax policy. Uh, you know, these are not. That's not an argument for why government should not have an education policy or a monetary policy or a fiscal policy or a tax policy. It's, it's an argument for saying that we should be very aware of these pitfalls and design policy-making processes and institutions um, uh, that are cognizant, uh, that take into account these potential pitfalls. And I think all the areas that we've talked about here, whether it's environmental transition to green, uh, innovation and industrial restructuring, uh, the green transition, uh, you know, those are m- may be from some perspective, uh, you know, new or additional roles, but they're not different uh, from any of the other traditional roles of the government that were even you know, uh, you know, middle-of-the-road uh, free-market economists uh, would have to accept that the government has to be there to provide the basic ground rules, um, and and the challenges are not necessarily bigger in those other areas. It, it's not about whether, but it's about how, and 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 you know, and that's what we ought to be discussing.
1: Danny, thank you very much indeed. Uh, we're coming to the end of our time now. Thank you very much indeed. I'd just like each of you to give your one last parting shot of the ideal balance that really is needed between private and and public to deal with the enormous challenges we're dealing now. I'll go first to Mariana.
4: Oh god, (laughs) at the risk of repeating. Um, We need to change the questions. We need to think of the investments that are required to increase capacity on both sides. We also have a capacity problem inside the private sector with increasing financialization of many large corporates. Um, And that capacity needs to be underpinned by a new approach to value as collectively created markets as co-shaped, co-created again. Um, But especially this issue of public-private partnerships needing to be much more ambitious about co-investing, sharing risks, but also sharing rewards so that they're more symbiotic. Um, And having really Uh, how do you say, creative ways to think about that crowding in phenomena, you know, the way that you actually, as I mentioned, increase the perception in the private sector where future opportunities lie, that can only be done with really bold public investments. It's not about, again, handouts or guarantees or simply tax incentives, but being ambitious to change landscapes towards important transitions like the green transition, but not only, which then can foster all sorts of new opportunities for creativity by multiple you know types of organizations public private and third sector
5: Mariana thank you Danny I think I would say that you know the the, the one big lesson from the last uh, you know one century of economic policy uh is uh that uh, that successful uh economics requires a mixed e- mixed economy um that is always a combination of private sector markets on the one hand and and, and directed uh, public uh, and collective action uh, on the other. I think, uh, you know, this mixed economy is a very flexible construct and we have very different examples of how it's put together. So there is not a single model, there's not a best practice in how you put it together. And so that necessarily um, that, you know, that it has exhibited uh, different models um, the Chinese model of the mixed economy is very different than the Western model or the German model or Scandinavian model or even the US, uh, which has been a mixed economy for the most part. Um, so, so there is this this variation uh, across time and 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 turning to the future. I mean, I think what we have, um, you know, we have, we need to say that that, that we need we, we face new challenges that's going to change the nature of the mixed economy and I think in two areas in particular uh, one is in terms of the you know the the the, the climate change challenge and the green transition uh, which is uh you know quite emphasized in the report second I would say is is the challenge in the labor market uh, addressing labor market polarization and the deficit of good jobs um, and I think that's sort of the, the second challenge and that the, the traditional sort of welfare state conception of the mixed economy, where the state largely uh, engages in, um, in in provision of social insurance and redistribution, um, with a little bit of industrial policy on the side, I think that sort of you know we need to we need to build on that um, uh, along those two dimensions of, of labor market polarization and the climate change, and that's sort of the these uh, new areas where. Uh, the mixed economy has to work its magic and we have to experiment.
1: Danny, thank you. And Beata?
2: Well, I would like to use my minute to pay a special tribute to you, Tony. You are retiring today and this is your last formal engagement at the EBRD. Over the years, you have been an amazing friend of the Office of the Chief Economist. You've moderated lots of Launches of the transition report of regional economic prospects. So, thank you very much, Tony. Best of luck in the next stage of your life and happy birthday tomorrow. If we were in the auditorium, you would now be hearing a very loud round of applause, but be sure that everybody here in front of their screen is applauding you now. Thank you.
1: Well, I have. <laughs> I wasn't expecting that, but thank you very much uh, indeed. Um, we will be putting a, a podcast out of this uh, later. You can find it on iTunes and do review it and rate it, and that helps people find us. Um, I'm Tony Williams. Thank you very much. Mariana Mazzucato, uh, Danny Roderick, Beati Yavocic, and thank you all very much for coming. Thank you.
0: You are listening to the live launch of 2020-2021 Transition Report.